You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, there are some records that we don't want to break, but recently we did just that. In early May of 2013, atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide passed a threshold that we didn't want to cross over. This was the 400 parts per million mark. That means one atom of carbon for every 5,000 atoms of nitrogen or oxygen. And this is a higher concentration of CO2 in our atmosphere than humans have ever seen since when, Seth? Oh, since ever. <laughs> since ever. Because to find levels this high, you have to go back millions of years before Homo sapiens existed. Now, the 400 ppm level, as reported by scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's, well, that's NOAA's, Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, is significant because climate scientists have argued for some time that if we are to have a chance of reversing or curtailing the effects of a warming planet, carbon dioxide levels needed to remain below 400 ppm. In fact, I think for a long time, 350 ppm was the red line. Yeah, or blue atmospheric line. Below 350 ppm, we might be able to successfully mitigate the changes. Above that, it gets harder. And if you get above 400 parts per million of CO2, well, we're headed for largely irreversible climate alteration. Okay. In some ways, the number 400 is symbolic. Nothing's going to happen overnight the moment that we hit that level. If you look in the mirror on your 50th birthday, you're indistinguishable from the person you were a day earlier. Happy birthday to me. Wait, is that a second gray hair? I didn't have that yesterday. But with time, changes accumulate. Now, this much you all know. This milestone is another grim reminder of what we're doing to our planet with the relentless belching out of man-made CO2. And it's not what's prompted us to dedicate our monthly episode of Skeptic Check to climate change. An opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal is. In Defense of Carbon Dioxide is the title of the journal piece from May 8, 2013. And it is on the opinion page, and it is the opinion of the authors, an engineering professor and former astronaut Harrison Schmidt and a physicist William Happer. Their opinion, carbon dioxide has been maligned. These guys think that CO2 has gotten a bad rap. They set out to rescue the reputation of this greenhouse gas, which is responsible for more than 80% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, by telling us that more is better. Anything, even water at high enough concentrations, is bad for you. So it's an extraordinary claim to state that an unlimited amount of CO2 is a good thing. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Skeptic Check Hostile Climate. And this is Phil Plate, a regular contributor to Skeptic Check, who keeps a skeptic blog about science on Slate.com. Phil recently wrote a take-no-prisoners rebuttal to the Wall Street Journal op-ed. 
Yeah, you know, reading this, all I could think was that of all the global warming denial articles I have read over the years, this was by far the bad, baddiest, baddest one I have ever read. Well, tell me how you really feel. Look, to begin with, <laughs> they say that there's there's really not much correlation of CO2 concentrations with global warming. And, and beyond that, they say there's not even been any warming for the past decade. I mean, that's quite a gauntlet they've thrown down. Yeah, well, they might as well just say the Flintstones was a documentary as well. I mean, if they're just going to make nonsense up, we know carbon dioxide is a global warming gas. It's transparent to visible light from the sun, which gets to the ground, heats it up, but is opaque to the infrared, the thermal infrared, that the Earth radiates away. So basically what that does is warms the Earth up. This isn't made up. This has been shown over and over and over again to deny that. Is, is simply fantasy. Well, what you're saying is that because carbon dioxide acts as a thermal blanket, the Earth inevitably has to warm up more if there's more CO2, that it's just simple high school physics. That's right. In fact, the amount of carbon dioxide that we have in the air keeps us above the freezing point of water. There are actually several greenhouse gases, including methane and water vapor. Those are constantly cycled in and out of the system. And they keep pretty much roughly the same level all the time. Carbon dioxide, however, is on the increase. We've been measuring it for decades, and it has gone way up, and that is clearly due to burning of fossil fuels and other human-made influences. That is warming up the earth. It is throwing a monkey in the wrench. It's, it's kicking the, the machine off balance, and the heat is building up now. That's what we talk about when we say global warming. So, in, in, in essence, how do they get away with this then? I mean, if this is simply a violation of elementary physics, how can these guys possibly have made that statement? Any idea? The Wall Street Journal is a bastion of publishing really egregious global warming denier articles. It's astonishing just how bad a lot of these are. Now, mind you, these two gentlemen who wrote this article, William Happer and Harrison Schmidt, are scientists. Uh, William Happer is a physicist at Princeton, and, and Harrison Schmidt is a geologist. He was actually an Apollo 17 astronaut. He walked on the moon. So, you know, in many ways, he's a hero. On the other hand, it goes to show you that walking on the moon does not necessarily make you an expert on climate change. And in fact, both of them have a long history of climate change denial. Uh, Harrison Schmidt has said things like the Arctic ice is increasing, which is bonkers. We know it's declining. Every measurement of any real meaning shows that both the volume and the extent of the Arctic ice has been shrinking with time. William Happer is also uh, the leader of the George Marshall Institute, which is one of these political think tanks. And they've been they, for years saying all kinds of science denial stuff that secondhand smoke isn't a problem and that you know tobacco is not carcinogenic and acid rain doesn't exist and there's no link between CFCs and ozone. It's basically you know a, a pay for your politics kind of a, an organization. You know, looking at their article further, you see that they're saying in addition to the fact that warming is not being caused by carbon dioxide, they say that carbon dioxide would actually be good for the earth, namely that it would increase agricultural productivity. We just have more to eat. Yeah, of all of sort of bang your head against a desk kind of sentences that they say in that article, that was that was the weirdest and the, the most 
almost egregiously wrong that carbon dioxide is just plant food. And if there's more carbon dioxide, we'll get more plants. Well, you know, this idea that carbon dioxide is not a poison, it's just a natural product, has been going around for a while in the denier circles, and it's ridiculous. If you don't think carbon dioxide is a poison, then, you know, tie a plastic bag over your head for an hour or two and, and let me know. Because, yes, it in certain circumstances, it's very dangerous. And in this case, saying it's plant food is just ignoring the biggest problem here, and that is you're heating the world up. Yeah, plants breathe the carbon dioxide, and some plants will do better in a more carbon dioxide rich environment. However, you know, while it's great that you can grow pineapples in Toronto, what's going to happen to Kansas? Uh, these plants down there, when, it, when the temperature hits 120 or something like that for months on end because the earth is warming up, they're going to die. So yeah, some plants will do well, but you're going to basically change the system so much that plants all over the earth are going to are going to die. You'll have droughts, you'll have floods, there'll be uh, sea level rises, a lot of people displaced. It's it's just an epic disaster. But part of their argument is that, you know, until the dinosaurs bought it about 65 million years ago, carbon dioxide concentrations were roughly 10 times what they are today. The landscape was lush. It looked like, uh, you know, the Garden of Eden. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's all well and good, but it's just the wrong argument. They're, they're arguing about global changes in carbon dioxide being great, which is clearly wrong because globally, this is going to be a catastrophe. But they're also ignoring the rate at which we're dumping carbon dioxide into the air. Now, right now, we just passed 400 parts per million. So that means if you were to count a million molecules of air, 400 of them would be carbon dioxide. Now, that doesn't sound like very much, but 100 years ago, and not even that uh, far in the past, there was only 300 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We've actually increased the amount of carbon dioxide by 25% since roughly the 1940s, something like that. That rate is so huge that it is clearly uh, unprecedented, not only in the past you know, few thousand years, but in the past few million years. And the problem with that is uh, adaptation, essentially. Plants and animals need time to adapt to changing conditions. We're changing the conditions so rapidly that we're going to be upsetting the ecosystem and we're going to see massive die-offs of plants and animals because of this. So just going back in time to some long time ago and saying, hey, carbon dioxide levels were higher then. Well, yeah, but they took hundreds of thousands or millions of years to get to that level. We're doing it thousands of times faster right now. So the bottom line of Happer and Schmidt is that carbon dioxide concentrations, that's just a straw man and that worrying about our own emissions is senseless. Now, that's the kind of argument you might expect, perhaps from an oil or coal company for obvious reasons, but these are both credible academics. You know, I don't know why they're saying this. I, I know that there are climate change deniers out there who are saying it because they're being funded by the fossil fuel industry. I know a lot of people who actually believe it. It's, it's much easier to sow doubt than it is certainty. And even though the vast, overwhelming majority of climatologists, scientists who study the climate for a living, say that carbon dioxide is causing global warming, this is real, it's happening, and it's our fault. Even though there's that much evidence for it, it's very easy to say, well look at this plot, cherry pick our data, look at this, look at that, and to sow this kind of doubt in the public conscious. And that's, I think, what these people are doing. I think a lot of them are doing it on purpose. And I can't say specifically that's what these guys are doing, but it's happening. And the Wall Street Journal, and there are a couple of other uh, venues who are doing this as well, 
they're they're very effective at it. It's very easy to do this. And the problem is they are fiddling while the planet is burning. Phil Plate, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you, Seth. Phil Plate is the keeper of a good blog, the Bad Astronomy blog, on Slate.com. But hang on a moment. I mean, let's consider. If CO2 is good for you and we exhale that... Yeah, go on. Well, what's the ying to that gaseous yang? Continue. Well, could it be that what we inhale is bad? So now it's out thanks to that stupid op-ed everyone knows. Take a pre-20th century Arctic chill pill, stand. The public only knows that CO2 is good for you. And that the more CO2, the better. That's not a surprise. No one suspects the obvious corollary that oxygen is bad. Not everyone can see the forest for the desiccated stoma-closed trees. Our secret meetings here have allowed us to mount our ingenious campaign of pushback. Can I get a price check in aisle two? No one would think of looking for us here at the Kmart Garden Center. Yeah, maybe you're right. So we're still ahead of the game. We agree to take our lead from plants. Because we all know that plants are the healthiest thing going. Eat food, mostly plants. But not too much. And our friends, the plants, don't like oxygen, right? Right. No. They exhale it. They can't get rid of the stuff quickly enough. Oxygen is the three-mile island waste of the vegetable world. If the plants don't like this stuff, and we like plants, well then... It gives me the shivers just thinking about breathing in that foliage waste product, the poison in my body. (laughs) Easy, Louise, easy. Here, breathe into this bag. Minimize your intake. That way, you're breathing less oxygen. That's it. Recirculating your breath. Look, everyone's focused on all the good that CO2 does. Not oxygen's harm, that it's lethal, that it rusts your car, that it aids and abets forest fires. Yeah, well, our woodlands are routinely roasted. Or that with too much oxygen in the atmosphere, the bugs become grotesquely huge. Dragonflies with three-foot wingspans. It's carbon nefarious is what it is. Think of all those people in the hospital breathing oxygen. And yet, look how sick they are. I can't believe no one has put it all together. Excuse me, can I get to the miracle Grow? It's right behind you. Oh, sure. Here you go. I recommend the pellets over the liquid. Thanks. You're welcome. Now, what makes me mad is that all this oxygen crowds out the vegetation-loving CO2. This troposphere isn't big enough for both. Breathe into the bag, Murray. Breathe into the bag. Thank you. See? See, less is more. Let go of your dependency. Just say no to O2. I hate it when I get upset. I take in more of the enemy. So we stick with the plan. We'll get oxygen emissions regulated. We'll put a cap but no trade on how much we inhale. But babies can take in all they want to a point. Then we wean them off. Ban oxygen tanks on airplanes and diving equipment and mandate extra large double wick birthday candles to burn it off. We already sent off our petition to the Oxygen Network to change their name. Good work. With our efforts, we can get oxygen demoted from the third most abundant element in the universe to the fourth or even the fifth. Yeah. Our gardens will grow bigger, more luxuriant. Imagine the size of the arugula leaves. Yeah. Then we go after the nitrogen. One thing at a time, man. Remember, secondhand gases are the second-tier plan. Okay, everyone, don your oxygen-restricting gas masks. Ready? Ready. Ready. Let's go. First stop, pick at the new oxygen bar downtown. Got your placards, everyone? Got them. Let's go. Attention shoppers, today only. Extra-large double-wicked birthday candles half off. (laughs) 
Next, what the Earth looked like. No, really, next, what the Earth looked like when carbon dioxide last ruled the planet and how climate change deniers may have ripped a sheet from the creationist playbook in attempting to block the teaching of science in the classroom. Is it warm in here or is it just me? Maybe it's a hostile climate on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. High levels of carbon dioxide are not new to the planet. Throughout history, the levels have fluctuated. 500 million B.C. and CO2 levels at 5,000 parts per million. You heard that right, folks. 5,000 parts per million. Cue the Cambrian explosion. Zip ahead 450 million years and CO2 levels drop to 3,200 parts per million. It's still toasty out there, folks. CO2 is on a fall, though, and this time it's a doozy. 180 parts per million. Here comes the ice. Oops, moving up to 250 parts per million, and the ice is gone holding steady until, whoops, it's on the rise again. Must be the steam engine. Now at 300 parts per million, it's 1965, and CO2 is at 320, and we're still going up. And as the levels of CO2 have risen and sunk like a ship on the high seas, life on the planet has adapted, says paleontologist Peter Ward. The thing is, high CO2 levels might be wonderful for your houseplants, but humans do less well. Although, to be honest, we don't really know how humans fare with levels of CO2 higher than 400 parts per million. That's because the last time levels were that high, humans weren't around. So to imagine where we are now headed, we have to travel to the past, way back to two and a half million years ago. Well, we're kind of just like the old movie, Back to the Future, except it's now back to the past. Uh, the time before the Ice Ages, which is the Pleistocene, was called the Pliocene. And that was a period when carbon dioxide, as now, was over 400 parts per million. So this really is a benchmark we do not want to hit, but we have. If, if, if I walked around with a camera photographing the flora and fauna, would I see anything that looked different than today? Oh, it'd be so different. Uh, first of all, North America, we hadn't gotten into the Ice Ages, so we never got the iconic North America fauna, which, of course, is now extinct. The giant mastodons and mammoths and, and big rhinoceroses and all that stuff. But it still would have looked like Africa. In fact, it would have looked very much like Africa. We had short-faced bears. We had lions. We had elephants. We had all kinds of camels. What we wouldn't see are any humans or any anthropoid-like creatures whatsoever. Okay, so we're not on the scene. Suppose somehow we could get that way-back machine and go back to the Pliocene and start walking around. Uh, would we have any trouble breathing the air? Could we, could we breathe the air? Would we notice any difference? No, it would be just like today. There would still be 21% oxygen. The vegetation would look very, very similar. We'd be in a big grassland-like situation as we are today. We're the central part of North America, huge grasslands. Um, the forests, even in the tropics by this time, are starting to break up. If we keep going back in time, we get to a planet with ever more forests. So as we do this way back machine of carbon dioxide, that's what we have to look forward to. In other words, what you're saying is as you go farther back, the level goes up. I mean, does it go up by, you know, 50 percent, 500 percent? I mean, how much does it go up if you go back, I don't know, 50 or 100 million years? 
Let's go back to 60 million years ago, and the carbon dioxide level was 1,000 parts per million. Now, let's, it's right now, it is 400 parts per million, and it's going up between 2 and 3 parts per million per year. So if we go up another 600, and that would be, what, 200 years at the rate we're going, we would be in a world where sea level is 240 feet higher than now, where the entire world is covered with jungle, where we have no ice anywhere on this planet, where coral reefs are every place, and where Seattle, Washington, my beautiful Seattle, is covered with palm trees because we have fossils of them right here. Okay, so that's a different world than what we have today, but I can imagine some people would say, hey, look, you know, the planet wasn't sterile. In some sense, it was more like a Garden of Eden back then than it is now. There were more plants. Uh, so, hey, you know, isn't it a fair argument to say that all this concern about CO2 levels could be overblown? No, it's not overblown. In fact, one of the interesting TV book series was The World Without Us, and we always have that mentality, gee, let's think about this world as you just did. We'll go back in time, and it will be the world without us. But it's not going to be the world without us. Let's take, we don't even have to go back 60 million years, Seth. Let's go back to, just as you said, two and a half to five million years ago, because sea level then was 20 to 40 feet higher than now. So take 20 to 40 feet and put that on top of all of the airports and especially all of the near shore crops, all the rice, all the deltas, all that goes away, but the people don't. That is the catastrophe facing us. It is the sea level rise because 400 parts per million and higher melts ice. Okay, so what you're saying is that people who argue, and there are people who do argue, that CO2 levels have been much higher in the past they're, they're making an apples and orange comparison here. Well, CO2 level has been much higher in the past, as have temperatures. As CO2 level goes up, so does temperature. This is where the, the biggest lack in the entire discussion about climate change is deep time. We talk about the Pleistocene and ice cores and things up to 100,000, maybe 500,000 years ago. You need to go back into the millions of years ago to understand what elevated CO2 levels do. Every time there has been high CO2, there have been periods of extreme world-covering jungle. All right. So so how do you respond? Do people say, hey, look, you know, CO2, uh, we, we've, we've been there, done that. It's not fatal. Well, it is fatal um, because we've never been there and done that with seven to nine billion people on the planet. As you know, by 2050, we're shooting for nine billion. We're up near seven or over seven billion now. Uh, the trouble with high CO2, while it makes plants grow faster and bigger, it also causes the fruit and the grains to produce less of the stuff we eat. So you have more plants with less of them in terms of crops. This is the scary part, the intersection of rising sea level covering crop area, high CO2 reducing plant output, and more people. Has there been any substantive change in CO2 levels since uh, Homo sapiens arose, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand years ago, or, you know, barring what's happened in the last hundred years or so? Yeah, we've seen from the ice cores, we really do see CO2 does fluctuate up and down and up and down. And a lot of this is you have to recognize that carbon dioxide is one of these gases that actually can move in and out of the earth, in and out of the atmosphere, in and out of water quite readily. 
Uh, there are what we call sinks where you dump it and it is stored away for a while and they come out of the sink all over your floor or in your face, I think is the case maybe here. But we, we've seen CO2 go up and down, but we've never seen it in the entire longevity of Homo sapiens. We've never seen it this high, nor has it ever gone up this fast. You mentioned ice cores. Now, this is a way of finding out what CO2 levels were you know, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years ago. But we've been talking a little bit about CO2 levels millions, even tens or, or 100 million years ago. How do we know what the CO2 levels were back then? Well, paleontologists are pretty clever, in fact. Uh, there's a natural little meter that you're, is all around us about how much CO2 there is. Plants have tiny little holes called stomata, and this lets CO2 in. Any plant, as you know, needs carbon dioxide to undertake photosynthesis. It takes that little carbon and, with sunlight, does some machinations and produces, voila, plant. Uh, in periods of very high carbon dioxide, plants don't need very much. And what they do want to do in times of high carbon dioxide, they want to keep their water inside them. So at times of high CO2, you've got very few of these little holes. At times of low CO2, lots and lots. There's not enough CO2. So it's a really beautiful quantitative measure from fossil leaves that tells us what CO2 was. All right. So that's reliable information. Uh, has the changing level of CO2, because clearly it's, it's varied by, I don't know, at least factors of 10 over the course of uh, the evolution of life on this planet. H how has it shaped that evolution? Uh, it's over a factor of 100 or even 200 in some extent. Uh, we know that the very highest levels of CO2 correlate with times of major mass extinction. Times of high CO2 are stagnant worlds where the oceans become cesspools. Uh, what about oxygen? Have we had any periods of uh, history in which uh, the oxygen levels have been significantly different? I mean, once oxygen arose on the planet a couple of billion years ago, has it remained more or less at this 21% level ever since? Well, it's been going up and down. In fact, I'm old enough to remember one of my favorite movies, James Arness from Gunsmoke, who is, again, another fossil long dead, fighting giant ants in the sewers of Los Angeles. Them. What a great movie. But we had a period when the ants, not quite that big, but we had dragonflies with two to three foot wingspans. We had giant centipedes, three feet long carnivorous millipedes, lots of stuff, because oxygen once was 32% compared to us 21% now. But oxygen has also gone down. These times of high CO2 produce low oxygen periods. They are correlated, one high, one low. And when it's low oxygen, evolution has to work really hard. One of the coolest discoveries of science is that why there were dinosaurs relates right back to low oxygen. Any bird, which is just a dinosaur, has a totally superb type of lung different than ours. We breathe in, breathe out through the same tube. They have a one-way tube. It's just like streets that are separated. And they also have a secondary set of lungs, air sacs they're called, that absorb more oxygen. This is why birds can be seen flying at 32, 33,000 feet, bar-headed geese above Mount Everest, when the poor 29,000-foot mountaineer is dying from lack of oxygen. There they are thumbing their wings at you. They are superb. So evolution has dealt with this in the past. Peter Ward, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for giving me the time in the forum.
Peter Ward is a paleontologist and he's a biologist in the Department of Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. Okay, speaking of climates... Well, what about the political climate? I mean, that's been overheated since this whole subject entered the public arena. Uh, While there's no debate any longer about whether the climate is changing, the climate change skeptics have raised an eyebrow at whether humans are behind the change and whether it's harmful. Hence the op-ed piece we discussed earlier, CO2 is good for you. But Josh Rosenau, the Programs and Policy Director at the National Center for Science Education, sees a trend developing among climate change skeptics. A pattern of borrowing the tactics used by creationists and later intelligent design proponents to challenge the teaching of science in the classroom. Josh, um, you wrote an interesting article that compared the tactics by the uh, climate change skeptics and by climate change deniers to those of the early creationists in opposing the teaching of evolution in schools. How did you begin to see these parallels? Where did these parallels make themselves apparent? A lot of it I, you see in the rhetoric that people use. There's a lot of talk about teach the controversy that is is so common from creationists and from the intelligent design creationist movement. You just see exactly the same sort of language being adopted by the, the climate change deniers. There was a, a resolution introduced in the South Dakota legislature a few years back and passed, which called for a balanced treatment of global warming, which is the exact same language that was used in the 1980s by in creationist bills that called for a balanced treatment of evolution and, and creationism in Arkansas and in Louisiana. And this was what the last Supreme Court case on creationism took on and, and declared to be unconstitutional in that case. So the rhetoric in this case is in the, some of the legislation that is now being introduced. Right. And that legislative strategy of, of uh, focusing on education, focusing on trying to create this perception of controversy, often you know, saying in a bill, controversial topics like evolution and climate change, lumping them in together like that and and labeling them as controversial when scientifically they're not. Now, you use the term um, climate change denier. What's the difference between a a climate change denier and a climate change skeptic? And isn't there room to have some skepticism about a science that is still unfolding? Oh, sure. You know, I'm skeptical about Bigfoot. I'm skeptical about ghosts. You know, if someone comes along with a better theory of gravity, then I'm open to that too. I I can be a skeptic in that sense. But skepticism also means accepting ideas that are have been well documented. And in cases like evolution and climate change, there's just such a wealth of science on the basic idea. There's a lot of research continuing on exactly how far the sea levels might rise, the particulars of what policies might have what which effects how how climate change is going to unfold in the future, uh, we can only know within error bars. So there are uncertainties within the change itself. But is climate change happening? Yes. Is it caused by humans? Yes. There's no longer a scientific dispute over those points. So it's a shift from something that's trying to find the truth and arguing over the details, which is what skepticism is and should be, to denial, to finding a politically motivated answer. When you talked about the legislation that's being introduced, and you said they're introducing this legislation, who is the they in in this case? The legislation started out as a a creationist bill that was filed in Alabama and that was a couple years later adopted as model legislation by a group called the Discovery Institute, which is the sort of institutional home of intelligent design creationism. They're uh, one of the forces in the, the 2005 Kitzmiller versus Dover case where uh, intelligent design was found to be a form of creationism and couldn't be taught in schools. 
And so this represented a new strategy. The idea was academic freedom guarantees the rights of students and teachers to present ideas other than what might be in the textbook uh, and to challenge especially controversial topics. This is their language, like evolution. Somewhere along the line, around 2009 uh, in Louisiana, that bill morphed and, and sort of merged with other things that were out there and started talking about not just about evolution, which the Alabama bill did, but to talk about evolution and climate change both as supposedly controversial topics. In the case of Louisiana, that meant that teachers should be able to bring in supplemental materials without external review uh, to present all sides of the issue, even if some of those sides were not scientifically credible or indeed might be unconstitutional present in, in uh, public school classroom. What's an example of the other side of the issue in, in climate change? The argument that that climate change is not happening would be one that, you know, that, that the temperature record is, is not sufficiently well known. Um, the claim is sometimes made that there's been no warming in the last 15 years, which is based on a misunderstanding of statistics, basically, and of meteorology. Or the claim that climate change is happening but is caused by natural solar cycles. There's a group called the Heartland Institute that mailed out a video called Unstoppable Solar Cycles, in which they've got you know little teenage girls talking to scientists or, or people who, who at least appear to be scientists saying, well, maybe it's not even caused by carbon dioxide. Maybe it's not people doing anything. Maybe And as long as there's uncertainty, really, we shouldn't be doing anything. Why should we be making big changes to our society until we understand whether it's human-caused or whether it's caused by these solar cycles that we can't do anything about. And does a rhetorical approach like that, to frame something like this, frame climate science or even the theory of evolution, framing it as um, controversial or taking the leap and framing it as being riddled with uncertainties, does that have an effect on the public mind and how they approach it? Oh, sure. You can see that in in cases like the tobacco industry using the idea of... uh, you know, doubt is our product. Well after there were Surgeon General's warnings and all sorts of other things telling people that cigarettes were dangerous, the tobacco industry's strategy was not to say, no, cigarettes are safe. Their strategy was to say, we don't know. Maybe they're safe, maybe they're not. And as long as they could maintain that uncertainty, their, their strategy, and they, this is in memos that their advertising and PR firms were, were sending around to the tobacco industry, as long as that uncertainty was there, they could go on business as usual. And that's the same strategy that Frank Lentz, this uh, Republican pollster who has done a lot to shape the language that, that conservatives use around a lot of issues, recommended in the, the mid-90s to Republicans in Congress that they should keep emphasizing the uncertainty about climate science, that they could win on the issue as long as they emphasize the uncertainty. So this is a tried and true method of um, framing a topic so that it puts a seed of doubt in the public's mind. It's it's not happenstance. I mean, it, actually, this has been proven. Well, I wonder, Josh, where you see this headed, if there's a strategy here, and uh, whether or not climate science could end up um, defending itself in the courts the way that uh, evolution, their evolutionary biologists felt that they had to, and, and teachers did, um, in the Dover trial, which was in some ways an echo of the Scopes trial and the teaching of evolution. Could you find climate, you know, climate science on the defense against those who believe that the controversy should be taught, and could that end up in the courts? There's certainly a strategy. To some extent, it's an explicit strategy that, you know, corporate 
groups and groups like Americans for Prosperity, the Koch brothers, the Tea Party movement explicitly or sort of by happenstance have, have stumbled upon. Whether it'll go to court in the same way as the Scopes trial is harder to say. There's not there's not the same constitutional issue in terms of, of what happens in the classroom. It's not something where with evolution, the the contrast is with creationism, which is an explicitly religious view. Or or in some cases a, a sort of sanitized but still implicitly religious argument, as with intelligent design. And you know, so there there's a First Amendment issue. With climate change it would be on different grounds. There might be a lawsuit over what happens in the classroom. And there certainly have been lawsuits over climate change policy that have, have tried to draw the science into question. Uh, and in one case, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, when they filed a lawsuit against the EPA over the beginning of carbon dioxide emissions regulations, described what they were doing as it's going to be the scopes trial, it's creationism and evolution. And finally, as a scientist and and someone who is involved in these issues, I'm sure you acknowledge that no area of science can explain everything. And there are lots of phenomena in the world that evolution can't explain and may never be able to explain. Um, what are the limitations to the theory of, of evolution? And could you say the same about climate science, that the climate is famously complex? And are there limitations to that science as well? Any, any science evolves. You know, the, the, the idea of gravity that we have today is different than what Newton had. And it's incomplete. We don't know everything about gravity. And what our children and grandchildren are going to be taught in schools about gravity, about evolution, about climate change, is different from what we understand today. I think it's really important that we teach kids today the best science that we have. Because with something like, like climate change, this is an issue that my kid, who's a year old now, is going to have to deal with for the rest of his life. Even if we stopped emitting carbon dioxide tomorrow, the inertia of the climate system is such that the effects will keep rolling for the rest of this century. And you know, scientifically, this is going to be the century of biology in a way that, that the 20th century was the century of physics, a century dominated by, by nuclear power and nuclear war. It's going to be the century of synthetic biology, of personal genomics. And there's no way to understand that and to make that useful as, as citizens, as scientists, as leaders in business, as policymakers, as voters. There's no way to be active participants in that without understanding evolution. I think we need to teach the best that we have right now to our kids so that they're ready for, for whatever may come, for whatever new discoveries may come, and for whatever opportunities that opens up. Josh Rosenau, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for having me. Josh Rosenau is the Programs and Policy Director for the National Center for Science Education. Next, why that Oakland, California group, which has spent two decades trying to forestall the blocking of the teaching of evolution in the classroom, has announced it is in the climate science business, too. We'll hear from its executive director. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Skeptic Check. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The National Center for Science Education has been devoted to defending the teaching of evolution in schools, and that's what it's been known for for two decades. You know, it would tell the public and teachers what was going on. It would challenge all these bills being introduced by states like Texas and Louisiana that were introduced to minimize the teaching of evolution in the classroom or to allow creationist or later intelligent design ideas to be taught right alongside evolution in science classrooms. Now, the center's executive director, Eugenie Scott, provided guidance to the teachers of the Dover School District in Pennsylvania when proponents of intelligent design demanded that their ideas be included in the classroom discussion of evolution. The battle went to trial in 2005, and the judge's ruling... The overwhelming evidence established that intelligent design is a religious view, a mere relabeling of creationism and not a scientific theory. For Eugenie Scott and her team, protecting the right of educators to teach the facts of evolution without all this obfuscation has been a relentless pursuit, and it's required a single-minded focus. So it was somewhat of a surprise when in 2012, the center launched an initiative to defend the teaching of climate change as well. We asked Eugenie Scott about this, and also on the eve of her recently announced retirement, her personal reflections on the efforts to keep the facts in the classroom and the politics out. Jeannie, why did you decide to include climate change as a major issue to take on? Blame Joe Levine. Joe Levine is a friend. He's a textbook author, and he spends a lot of time going around the country talking to teachers, to you know, doing workshops on how to teach various biology subjects better. In his workshops for teachers, he would always uh, do his thing, and then at the end say, okay, you know, question period, what are your problems? And uh, the teachers always complain about evolution, but he said now they're starting to complain about getting pushback about climate change. They mention global warming. A kid raises his hand saying, teacher, daddy says global warming is, is a hoax. We also were finding that there were school boards that were having controversies. And we had noticed a few years previously that evolution and climate change were being bundled as controversial issues in state legislation around the country, these academic freedom acts. So we decided, well, let's look into this. I mean, everybody felt that since we had all this experience with dealing with evolution as a controversial issue, that, um, hey, all you need to do is add the science, and <laughs> we know how to handle controversial issues. And we understand the politics, and we understand the, you know, the big picture, so to speak. What does it mean to teach the science of climate climate change in these classrooms where the students were maybe raising their hand and protesting. Can you give an example of how it might come up in, in a class? Uh, would a teacher be talking about, um, if they're talking about, he or she is talking about atmospheric physics, might be talking about the changing chemistry or a temperature rise in the, in the atmosphere? What's yeah, an I think I think you just described one example very nicely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's one example of where the topic might come up. Oh, and by the way, students, uh, because we're adding so much CO2 to the atmosphere because of the burning of fossil fuels, the planet is getting warmer. And then Teacher, student, my yeah. students, <laughs> my dad says climate change is a hoax, and you know, that's where it would come up. But if these students are in a classroom saying, you know, I've learned that global warming is a hoax, 
aren't they doing exactly what they should be doing, which is raising a question and then the teacher can answer the question. So what is it that you and the National Center for Science Education would like to see done differently? Well, it's good if a student uh, brings up a question about um, a scientific topic. There, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, the problem with challenges like we're dealing with is that they're not just straight up science questions. These are ideologically based um, challenges that teachers have to face. And frankly, just shoveling more science back at the student isn't going to solve this problem. This is what we found with evolution. It took us a while to figure that out, but we've been doing this for a long time. You have to deal with the underlying ideological opposition before the fingers come out of the ears and the students can even listen to the science. Now, with evolution, it's pretty easy to show that the ideology is religious. With climate change, the ideological opposition is a little more complicated. There's only a tiny, tiny slice that's based on religion that you can almost uh, dispense with it. It's not important. The major reason why you find opposition to the science of climate change is because of political ideology and economic ideology. In the case of political ideology, for reasons we you could spend several shows on probably, uh, the idea of global warming has become entangled with the idea that Global warming, climate change, is merely an excuse to increase the power of big government. And our individual freedoms are at risk, and individual freedoms are a big deal to an American culture. There's also an economic component to the ideological opposition to the science, and that is sort of a free market fundamentalism, in, in the words of George Soros, the idea that, um, no, you don't need to have any constraints upon the carbon producers. The free market will solve all problems if you try to uh, institute things like carbon taxes or uh, cap and trade or any of these other measures. You are tinkering with something that is holy, which is capitalism, and therefore uh, this is all just a plot of socialists to try to attack ca capitalism. Let's come back to creationism, and um, because that is that is the other subject that you're still working on, the issue that you're still working on that has not gone away. If you look on your website where you keep a, a running tab of the number of bills that are out there, I lost track of <laughs> what's ahead. So you'll you'll get a bill in um, Louisiana and and maybe one in Texas that look encouraging from the point of um, uh, evolutionary biologists where certain bills are being repealed because these legislators have decided we, we are not going to push teaching the controversy. And then at the same time, there's something happening in Pennsylvania where a bill is being introduced that suggests maybe we should be teaching the controversy. It goes back and forth and back and forth. And I wonder... Um, you know, now that you, you will retire, at least from your current position here at the National Center for Science Education, the fight for science education is going to continue. Oh, no, really? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I thought I would let you know oh, that. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so I wonder, then, is there an end in sight? And if there's not, how you look back and what you feel your, your greatest accomplishments were if the fight just continues and continues and continues like this? Where has the progress been? The progress is... Think of all the bills that would have passed. Think of all the school board resolutions that would have passed, uh, that, that would have compromised the teaching of science. Think of all of the teachers who were helped in coming up with ways of presenting this, quote, controversial, quote, subject. 
who feel comfortable in teaching it and didn't just decide to leave it out because it was too much work. That's progress. Uh, no, we didn't stop the anti-evolution movement. Big surprise there. But we did make a difference. On a personal note, if I can ask you this question about your growing up, and I was interested to learn this, I understand that you grew up in a Christian science household, and I'm just wondering how that shaped your early years, because that's a, a different belief system than where you are right now, I understand. My mother was Christian science. My um, grandmother and some of my, my great aunts were Christian science. Um, we were Christian science until I was maybe in first or second grade, something like that. And what did that mean? Well, it, it meant really boring Sunday schools, frankly. That's pretty much all I remember from going to Christian Science Church. So I can't say that Christian Science theology had much of an effect upon me. It did have one big effect, though, and that's that none of us uh, got inoculations, uh, with, with the exception of polio, because the boy next door who was my age got polio, and he was a quadriplegic, and he was in a wheelchair, and just seeing uh, uh, Stafford uh, being pushed around in a wheelchair kind of inspired my mother that when the polio vaccine came out when I was a child, she got us all inoculated. But I, it wasn't until I went to um, Africa as a college student uh, for a summer abroad that uh, I realized, oh, I've never been vaccinated for smallpox. <laughs> Or any of these other things, <laughs> because so, one of the beliefs in the in your household or in a Christian Science household, in, as in it the is, household in which I grew up, in the household in which you grew up, was that you do not go to doctors and you have no right. invasive medicine of any kind. You That's just right. believe that um, your body will heal on its own, which often it does by, by getting right with God. And you know, well, it, it's true. I mean, I think physicians get a lot of credit uh, because they're dealing with a self-healing organism, which. Yeah, I think we ought to pay car mechanics much more than physicians because they, you know, cars don't fix themselves when they, when they break down. But never mind. I'm just making a joke. Um, no, uh, my early upbringing, uh, we hardly ever went to doctors. We we certainly never had regular checkups like I gave my daughter, of course. Uh, and I also remember getting every childhood disease known to humankind. I mean, I had whooping cough, and I had measles, and I had mumps, and I had chicken pox, and I, you know, you name it, I had it. Um, actually, it was, uh, you know, I almost died, now that you mention. Um, when I was 15, um, I came home from the swimming pool in Milwaukee, and I had this uh, cramp in my uh, lower abdomen, and uh, boy, it really hurt, so I went to bed, and Next morning, it really hurt, and I, you know, was throwing up, and it just felt terrible. And it was actually my stepfather who, after about a day and a half of this, said, you know, we really ought to take her to a doctor, because my mother wouldn't have thought of it. And it was my stepfather who said, hey, we re really ought to get her to a doctor, and I'm here because of it. And I have about a 8-inch scar on my abdomen because I had a ruptured appendix, and gangrene had set in, and if we had waited much longer, I'd have been a goner. And do you remember the moment, if it was a moment, or sometimes these things happen over a period of time, where you, where you turned away from those beliefs and turned more towards science, and you became a scientist, and in the end you, you got your degree in anthropology, I believe. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think it's really important not to juxtapose science and religion. Um, it wasn't that science took hold and therefore I 
abandoned religion. I was always interested in science, and science and religion certainly coexisted in me um, and coexist in, as I've discovered in doing this job for decades. Uh, there are plenty of religious people who embrace science, who feel that science is valid and important and you know, that they don't find that their particular religious beliefs conflict. There are some Christian religious beliefs that conflict with science, you bet. But, you know, we, we shouldn't kind of reflexively fall into this, oh, these are necessarily loggerheads kinds of, of situations. Um, I would have to do some thinking about um, how it is that I drifted away, but I think it was a drifting away more than anything else. Eugenie Scott, thank you so much for speaking to me. I'm delighted to do it, Molly. Thank you. Eugenie Scott is the executive director for the National Center for Science Education. We wish her a happy and productive retirement. And so it sounds as though the fight for science education continues. You know, it seems to be a nonstop uh, effort. I, I, I'm somewhat surprised. You always feel that if this issue goes away, we've moved forward. But maybe we're just back to square one in some sense. Well, we've thought that way with climate change in the in the public eye, too, that if you just put the facts out there, people would understand what's happening to the climate and want to do something about it. It hasn't been as straightforward as that. Well, the climate change climate might be hostile, but our production staff are quite agreeable. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance, and lots of thanks to them for help on the program. Also thanks to the support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced right here at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking. It's called Skeptic Check, this episode, Hostile Climate. You can find more Big Picture Science, more Skeptic Check on iTunes and through the link on our website. We have a big archive there. And while you're online, why not head over to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because all those radio waves only infinitesimally warm the atmosphere, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.